Today's passage, man, it is unique. Uh, it is, but it's rich. And I thoroughly enjoyed studying it this week, and I'm excited about us digging in together. So I'll start out saying this. I like fireworks. Like, really. A couple, actually, whenever, the last time I preached, I think I started out the sermon, and this is what I said, I like guns. So I know if you're a parent of one of our middle school or high school kids, or any kid, you're probably scared. Look, I just really enjoy fireworks. Uh, growing up, I have these memories, especially, you know, Fourth of July, me and my dad and sometimes my sister, we would go to the fireworks stand, usually the day before or maybe the day of because that's when you get the best discount, right? So it's like buy one, get like five free because they're just trying to clean it out. I mean, there's got to be something wrong with that. But anyway, you, you get all of this amazing stuff, right? You, we would get the firecrackers, we get the bottle rockets, we get the colorful things because, you know, we wanted to put on a tiny show in our parent grandparents' neighborhood, all that, and then this one year we got this thing called Saturn missiles or rockets. I don't know if they're still legal. Um, <laughs> have no idea. I said Saturn missiles, and the Holland family in one of the previous services was all nodding their heads, so I know they know. Um, Nevertheless, we get these things, and it's like this box of like 50 or 25 little missiles that, for the record, when you light them, scream really, really loud, and it freaks you out. So here's what happens. We, we, we get this. We have the whole family out there. You know, it's dark. My grandparents are out there. They're like in their 70s at this point, and all of a sudden, we're like, let's start this. We shoot a few fire bottle rockets, whatever, and then we shoot these, these Saturn missiles. Well, apparently there's a short fuse on the Saturn missiles, number one. Number two, someone got real scared, and when they ran away, didn't pay attention that they kicked the missiles. Well, here's the crowd. The missiles are now pointing this way. Yeah, great memories. Grandparents hitting the deck. I mean, like, it was... The, these things are screaming. It's like tracers, like, going by. And I've never been in battle, but that was the closest thing I've probably ever been to. I mean, it's just everywhere. So, yeah, needless to say, got a lot of fond memories um, of celebrating holidays like the 4th of July uh, with family and fire. You know, I've been thinking recently, probably more so, um, just about the holidays that we have. Right? We just recently celebrated Memorial Day. And for those of you who know, um, Memorial Day is a day really of remembrance. I mean, we're certainly celebrating the freedom that we have, but Memorial Day's focus is really about man, remembering those who have specifically laid down their life on the battlefield, not come home in order that we would have freedom. Or, obviously, we, we can talk about Veterans Day, which many of you are veterans in this room. We, we celebrate and give thanks to you for going and making a sacrifice to be away from your family and your friends while you served, for making a sacrifice for many who came back never the same. Whether they lost physical limbs or mental capacities, 
or what have you. The bottom line is, you paid a price, you made a sacrifice, and for that, we thank you. And of course, Independence Day, well, that's a day that we celebrate our independence, right? Going all the way back to 1776. Why are these days in place? I've I've wondered this. So that we never forget. So that we have regular reminders that call us back to where we came from, to the freedom that we have, and the price that was paid for it. Amen. God started doing that long ago with Israel, his people. Today, we are going to see one of those reminders that he put in place specifically for Israel. And we're going to see that this reminder not only pointed back to who God was and how he had redeemed them, but it also pointed forward, like when I put a reminder on my phone, it's to remind me of something that's coming up typically. It was pointing forward to what Jesus was going to do. That he was going to be the one who was going to pay for all of the sin of his people. It's really cool. I can't wait to get started, but let's pray before we do, all right? Father, we're not worthy to open up your word. We're not worthy to even come in your presence. God, the only reason that we can open up your word, understand any of its truth, ever worship you, is because of what Christ has done for us. And so this morning, God, I pray that you would bring, for some, for the first time, the real clear Christ. For others of us, that God, you would remind us through your word of who you are, of what you've done, and what it's meant for us and the freedom that we enjoy. God, break us, meet with us. We pray all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's dive in. Matthew chapter 17, 24 through 27, a unique passage that you probably have not heard preached on often. But today, oh yeah, we're diving in. So here we go. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, being Peter, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he, when he said, From others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. 
So first thing we see is they have come into Capernaum. Now just, I mean, briefly, just want to give you a little bit of reminder about Capernaum, okay? Peter's hometown, main place, Mark tells us in his gospel, this is where Jesus chose to live, all right? We're kind of the home base of his ministry operations here in Capernaum, all right? So this is what we got here um, as they're coming onto the seashore to Capernaum. They're coming back home, back to this town. And what do they encounter? They encounter tax collectors, right? Which was typical. There would be tax collectors that would either be on the shore or they'd be on the outskirts of town, and they'd be there collecting the taxes. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of a background. If you remember, Jesus and the disciples have been gone for a little while. You go all the way back to chapter 16, they were in Caesarea Philippi. Here they are in Caesarea Philippi, and then they fast forward to Jesus goes up with Peter, James, and John to the Mount of Transfiguration. Right Then they meet back up in Galilee. And last week, you remember Jesus gives them the second major prediction of the fact that he was going to go and suffer and die and be resurrected. All right? Just to catch us up to speed. So here we have now, Matthew chooses to show us this picture of the disciples and Jesus coming back to Capernaum and having this encounter with the tax collectors. What do you know about Matthew's former life before he came to know Jesus and follow him? What did he do? You can say it out loud, it's fine. Yes, he's a tax collector. Right? Matthew, otherwise known as Levi, was a tax collector. Now, the kind of tax collector that he was, was that if you remember, again briefly, he was a guy who was a Jew who was collecting taxes to give to Rome. And then he would take an additional amount than that, w- that was due to Rome and line his own pockets. Okay, so, so this is what we know typically of tax collectors when they're mentioned. They were seen by the Jewish community as traitors, um, just like if the same scenario was played out here and we had someone who was American and we'd been overrun, taking money and giving it to the overrun government, we'd see them the same way. So that's the way they see them, okay? These tax collectors in Capernaum are not taking taxes for Rome. And I want to be very clear about that, okay? They're not taking the taxes from Rome. They're not seen in a negative light by the Jewish people. Not the same. They're taking specifically taxes for the temple, which we're going to talk a little bit about a little bit later. So I just want to set the stage. This is what you've got. So here we see that they encounter specifically, the tax collectors ask and address Peter a question. Hey, Peter, Simon, does your teacher, right, does Jesus pay the tax. Another way to phrase that, your teacher does pay the tax, doesn't he? You know, I love, 
text messages, and I hate text messages. Because have you ever gotten a message and you look at it and you go, I don't know if they're angry, sarcastic, happy, sad, or I don't really know what. When we read this, the first thought, because we know about the Pharisees, we know about the Sanhedrin, we know about the run-ins that Jesus has had with them, we think, well, these guys represent the temple, so they're probably you know, trying to hook Jesus into something. They're probably asking with this tone that's like, does, you know, trying to hook him. We'll just put it that way. Don't read it like that. These guys were uneducated, typically uneducated guys, who were seeking to really just fulfill the instruction that they'd been given. Really, what they're doing is not a bad thing. They're collecting a tax. And it could have been a very honest question because typically what was going on is that rabbis would be exempt from the tax. At least those who had been formally trained and ordained. Of course, we know that Jesus had not been formally trained and had not been necessarily ordained by the synagogue. Not that he needed it. But when this question is asked, it could literally just be an innocent question of, does he pay the tax? Or is he claiming his exemption? Okay? Peter says, yeah. He pays it. Maybe it's because Peter's seen Jesus do this. Maybe he knows. Either way, he affirms. So Peter walks away from the tax collectors. He comes into probably his house where Jesus and the other disciples, I, I assume, are unpacking. You know, they've been on a long journey. They're getting kind of settled. And as soon as Peter walks in, Jesus says, what do you think, Peter? Now, here's the thing. I grew up with a sister and a mom. And I had to add to. But the sister and the mom, especially in those middle school, high school years, man, my mom would say her name with a certain tone. And I knew this is going to be good. <laughs> I mean, it's like an MMA fight with words, right? I'd be like, Dad, we got to get the popcorn for real. <laughs> Just sit there. Don't mind us. So when I, when I hear this and I, I was reading and studying this passage, I thought, man, I could see like John, you know, and James and Andrew hearing Jesus say, Simon, what do you think? And them going, oh, man, this is going to be good. <laughs> James, get in here. You remember last time? Jesus called him Satan. <laughs> so I can just see it. And here, Jesus asked this question. And he says, what do you think, Simon? <sighs> what do you think? From whom do the kings of the earth take a toll or a tax? From their sons or from others? And Simon says, well, from others, right? This is like a parable. It's like a parabolic question, to use kind of a, I don't know, a nerdy term. 
right? He asked this question. And what, what do we know about parables, right? A parable is an earthly story that is communicating or relating a spiritual meaning, right? Okay, amen. So we read this, and what we see is Jesus is asking this question that would have been familiar knowledge, right? An, earth, an earthly king, a king of the earth, when he takes taxes for the kingdom, when he's raising money for the kingdom, what does he do? Does he tax his sons and his family? No, not normally. Now, some of you may be history buffs, and you say, oh, but I want to raise an objection. I know there may be exceptions. But, normally, the king is not going to tax his own family. Normally, he's going to tax others in the kingdom that he's conquered, right? Sales tax, people tax, good tax, those type of things. So Peter answers saying, you know, normally it's others. What does it mean? Like, what is Jesus asking? Well, let's talk about the tax first. The tax. I've called it the temple tax. You see here in the passage, if at least in the ESV, you get that up on the screen real quick. Just first, that yeah, perfect. It's referred to as the collectors of the two drachma tax. But then if you go to verse 27, if you go to verse 27, um, what you see is it's referred to now as a shekel, right? There's a one shekel that's in the fish's mouth. Now look, this is a side note, I'm not meaning to bore you, but some of you may be like me, and you look at it and you say, what, what, this is confusing. Well, going back to Exodus chapter 30, 11 through 16, we see really the origin of this tax. And God instructs the people, he actually instructs Moses, to have the people numbered, and all of those males who are 20 and above were to give half of a shekel. Shekel being a currency that's not now used in Jesus' day in the Roman Empire. All right? That's why you see both of those phrases. So, half a shekel would be the equivalent to two drachma. And just as a completely nerdy statement that you can ignore if you want to, in the Roman Empire, they actually did not, at that time, mint the two drachma anymore. They minted a four drachma coin. I told you it was nerdy. Take it or leave it. So it's like the $2 bill that used to be made that now is not made. Okay? Sweet. Side notes. All that to say, in Exodus 30, we see God instruct Moses to pretty much put a tax on all the males 20 or above. And for what reason? He instructed them to do it because they were seeking, they were funding the tabernacle, right? The place of worship. This half shekel was going to go to supply the foundations of the boards of the tabernacle. What goes on in the tabernacle or the temple? Well, what services are performed? 
one of the services that's performed is the sacrifices specifically to be payment for this, the forgiveness of sin of the people as God had instructed, right? So this tax was supplying and funding the services of the temple and it was the foundation specifically of the temple. Why? Why did God do this? Well, he tells us in Exodus 30, we see that it's for them to remember the cost of their sin and forgiveness. So let's go to the kings of the earth. Jesus uses this term. What do you know about kings of the earth? First, they die. Don't they? Yes, they do. Are y'all awake? Amen. Okay, good. I mean, this is my third service. I could just pass out. I've already told many of you I'm going to tag you in, okay? All right. So here we are. Kings of the earth. They don't live forever. What is the king of all kings? What's his lifespan? Forever. For eternity. He will never die. Okay. What about the reign of kings? of the earth. Well, man, while there's been some amazing emperors and dictators who have had long reigns, eventually those reigns always come to an end. Either an enemy rises up or many enemies align together or they get sick and weakened or they get arrogant and eventually their arrogance leads to their demise. Or things outside of their control happen, right? As kings of the earth. What do we know about God the Father? There's nothing completely outside of, ever outside of his control. He controls all things. The enemy, his enemy, will never defeat him. He has won it is finished, and it'll be completed at the end of days. No enemy can come against him. So Jesus is telling this parable of the kings of the earth, and obviously it's relating specifically to God the Father, who is God of all creation, who needs no money at all. Right? He has all the resources that he'll ever need. The kings of the earth have to take in money, but he doesn't need any money. He doesn't need any resources. So it begs this really important question. Why in the world would God tax his people? Why would he do it? If he doesn't need the money, if he doesn't need them to ultimately make a temple because he could make a temple just like that. I love what Philip Ryken says. He says, every time that the Israelites saw the temple foundations, they would remember that their house of worship rested on the price 
that was paid for their redemption. Every single time that they looked at the foundation of that temple, they remembered their sin cost a price. They had to pay. But here's what's crazy. Here's what we know to be true. They couldn't buy forgiveness of sin. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 3 even tells us that the blood of bulls and goats, that wasp. Yeah, buddy, amen. <laughs> if you come up here to pray, be careful. All right. Never had that happen even in Africa, all right? This is, whoo. Yeah, buddy. Stomping those enemies out. How do you get back on track after that? <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. Our greatest obstacle. No, I'm not going to say that. What are the reminders in your life that Jesus paid it all? What are the reminders in your life? What happens in your daily routine? Man, what happens this week, next week, what do you do before you go to bed? What do you do when you just want to relax? What do you put in your life to serve as reminders of the price that was paid for your forgiveness? Jesus' response, man, he says, to Simon. Well, then the sons are free. The sons are free. Right? They're free from paying the tax. And obviously the intended meaning as he is communicating this, one, he's the son. He's the son of God. He's made it very clear. Right? He's made it very clear what his position is. For one, if you remember, John the Baptist baptizes him at Jesus' instruction. And God the Father says, this is my son. That's pretty clear. Moreover, we see all that Jesus has done, showing his control over the power or over the wind and the waves, over weather, showing his power over death and life. No one could do that except for God. He raises Lazarus from the dead. He heals the sick. He makes the blind see all of it. I mean, it just adds up, right? How can you not see this is the Son of God? Moreover, we're just on the tail end of where he had went up and showed his glorified body to Peter, James, and John. He's the Son. And all of the rights and privileges that come with being a son. He's exempt for paying the tax. But notice something. He doesn't say the son is free, does he? He says, then the sons, plural, are free. He's speaking to Peter. What's he saying? 
He's saying that those who are connected to him, right? Those who have put their faith in him, those who are in him, are children of God. And that's not a far-fetched thing to really say. Matthew 5, 9, going back to the Beatitudes, right? You see Jesus explaining what are some characteristics of those people who are in the kingdom of God? One of those is blessed are the peacemakers, for they are the sons of God. Then we see Paul in Galatians chapter 4. What is Galatians chapter 4, specifically in verse 4 and 5, boom. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Check this part out. So that we might receive adoption as sons. And if you're a girl and you're like, hey, wait a minute. You don't want to be an adoption as a daughter. In that day and age, to be a son meant you had rights and privileges. So we receive adoption. Our price is paid in full. What he's communicating to Peter, you are a child of God. Man, it's awesome. Let me just stop. Does that really just amaze you? Here we are. We know that we're not perfect. We know that honestly, if given to our natural desire, we would rebel against God and have done it all the time. You don't have to look far in Scripture to see and look far to see in our own life that that's true. So here's what Scripture says. We are the enemies of God. We're not just morally okay people. We're not just neutral. We literally are likened to his enemies. We are in the enemy camp apart from Christ. And we, we should be destroyed. Have you thought about that? Have you taken time to just stop in the craziness of your life and think, what I really deserve is not the next new car. What I really deserve is not a condo with the beach or a vacation. What I really deserve in and of myself is hell. That's what I have a right to. That's what you have your own right to because that is literally what we have accomplished with our own goodness. And I don't know about you, but when I stop and really think about the reality that I in my own self deserve nothing but eternal judgment, that I've been an enemy of God, and that I am hostile before Christ, hostile in my mind towards him, as Colossians chapter 1 tells us. But Christ, the Son of God, he said, I want you 
I want to pay the price so in full so that you can no longer be an enemy but be part of the family of God. Man, you know what's crazy to me? You know what I hate about myself? And what's true of us? We allow the truth about Christ to just become familiar. The greatest obstacle to growing in our relationship with God isn't our busy lives or the cultural distractions of our day. Our greatest obstacle to a growing intimacy with God is that we have allowed Christ's sacrifice and the cost of our sin to become too familiar. Oh, Jesus died for me. Is equated in the same category in our minds with the same emotions as I've got to get gas this week or I've got to go to the grocery store. Oh yeah, and Jesus died for me. I'm going to Bojangles again for breakfast. And Jesus died for me. I've got to take out the trash. Oh yeah, and Jesus died for me. We have allowed the gospel in the preciousness of the sacrifice of Christ to become so familiar that we are numb to the reality of what we've been given. And I don't know about you, but I know about myself. It literally makes me angry at myself. But here's what it shows. Man, I've got to fight to never let it become familiar. I've got to set reminders in my life to allow me to never forget what he's done for me. What about you? What have you got to do? And let me just tell all of you a secret. We can't in our own power change our heart. But man, we can choose to set up things in our life each and every day and every week and pursue him and beg God please give me a hunger for you today please remind me of the joy that it is to know you and to worship you don't let me forget and if we seek him with all our heart we we find him man that is awesome So what happens? What does Jesus do? Jesus pays the tax. <laughs> Is this not just crazy to you? It's crazy to me. Like he pays the tax. He has every right not to pay this temple tax. The temple tax, man, it funded a system that was going to be completely null and void with what he was about to go do. Man, the temple tax... He was the son. He didn't have to pay it, right? He's already established that. 
but he pays it. And he doesn't just pay it like, hey, here's, here's a shekel. Here's four drachma. Just go pay it. No, he says, in order not to bring offense to these guys, let's pay it. Man, he wanted the message of the gospel to not have any unnecessary obstacles. Which Paul picks up that truth later, Romans 14. That it wasn't about Jesus saying, I have rights. What it was for Jesus was, I want the message to go forward. But you know what else? The miraculous way that Jesus pays this tax, and if there are any fishermen in here, you will agree with me that this is miraculous. He tells Peter to go and throw a hook in the water. Go to the sea, throw a hook in the water, and there's going to be a fish there, and it's going to have a shekel, or actually four drachma in its mouth. You're going to pick it up, get it, take that out of its mouth, because apparently he didn't swallow it, and you're going to take it and pay the tax for both of us. That is amazing. The miraculous way that he chooses to pay this tax points to an even more miraculous way that he's going to go and suffer and die on a cross. The fact that he was humbled and said, I'm not going to claim my rights before the high priest. I'm not going to claim my rights as the son of God, as the king of kings but I'm going to put my rights to the side for the joy set before him. And he endured the cross to pay the price fully, completely for you and for me. Yeah, that should rock us. We should be so excited and how I pray that we will not forget. John Piper says this in his teaching on this passage. He says, you do not have to go anywhere or pay anything to worship God. He has come to you. Here he is. There he is in your tomorrow, at your work. There he is on your commute. He's there. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, on your weekend, he's there. You don't have to go anywhere to worship him. Jesus has made a way. Come to him. Seek him. Some of you may be here this morning, and maybe for you, man, you sit here and you think, yeah, that's great, but you don't know what I've done when nobody's been looking. You don't know what I've done. And you can say that, and it sounds really good, youth pastor guy, but look, I'm not a kid. I got a pretty bad record. You know who does know? God. 
And when Jesus was on his way to the cross, he saw every single sin that you were doing, that you were committing, that you were going to commit, that I was going to commit, and he saw that. And he took it and he paid for all of the penalty and the consequence of that sin. He paid for it on the cross with his blood. Once and for all. It's so cool that he paid for the sin of all the world, all the people of all time and all history, ever. Did you ever think about that? Jesus' death on the cross was sufficient to pay for all of the sins of all the people of all the world for all history and all future. Hitler Jesus' death was on the cross was sufficient to pay for all of the sins of Adolf Hitler. But it's only applied to those who put their faith in Christ. That's amazing. Maybe today, for you, as you sit here, and you're ready to leave, and you're ready to go eat lunch. Maybe for you, you look at your own life and you think, my walk with Jesus, I wouldn't really call us as close as we used to be. Hey, you know what? One, what are you missing out on relationship with Jesus for? What are the things that are causing you to walk away, to be distracted, Man, I'm glad that Jesus was never distracted. And what's so joyful, that's not meant to be mean, but what's so amazing is that he is inviting us to enjoy him and to stop being numbed by the deceptions of the world, even the things that are just morally <coughs> neutral. What are the things that we put in our life? I told one service, hey guys, I like George Strait. But you know what I found? If I'm listening to a praise and worship song in my car, and I'm not being a legalist here saying if you listen to George Strait, you're a bad person. Just told you I listened to it. But when he sings a song about Christmas cookies, it doesn't really invite me to the throne of God to worship. For me, when I listen to songs on my commute, it's a reminder and an invitation to worship. Man, it's a catalyst. It's awesome. I've been listening to this song called Living Hope by a guy named Phil Wickham, like on my car ride here this whole week. And every time it's just like, Lord, it's just awesome. What are the things you're setting in your life? And how are you running to him?